2: and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's
1: Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, pop culture, technology, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Good to be here. And also back is frequent guest and producer on the podcast, Christina Monlos. Welcome back, Christina.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: And also back, it's been a little while, uh, Steph Patrick, our digital executive editor uh, who runs most, most of our web team. Steph, it's always good to have you on the podcast. It's
4: great to be back.
1: All right. we got a lot to talk about today. Apple's big announcements of their new products. And in this case, actually, uh, for us, one of the more interesting aspects is uh, some of the software uh, that they've got coming in, the impact it'll have on the ad industry. Uh, We're also going to talk about our cover story, which was uh, two parts. One, an interview with Gina Davis uh, by Christina Monless. So Christina will be telling us a little bit more about that. And also our list of disruptors, uh, women in the marketing and tech industry that are shaking things up. Quite a few women in there, so we will be talking about that as well. We've also got some uh, news on advertising awards and ratings in the cable news space, which has really been a fascinating place in the last last year, but especially in recent months. But first, the news. Right. Well, as I mentioned, Apple had their big event. Normally, this is the place where you look for like, oh, the new iPhone or the new, uh, you know, MacBook Air or something. And they did have some hardware uh, that they announced. There's going to be some new desktops and there's going to be some new, I think, iPads. Uh, But what is probably the most controversial in in the sense of things we cover is uh, some software changes they're making to their browser. Uh, Safari's new browser will be blocking desktop ad tracking, which is something advertisers uh, certainly rely on to target their ads. And uh, I think most interesting to me is it will reportedly block autoplay video, uh, which, as we know, since Facebook implemented that, Twitter implemented that, it's become pretty standard. Uh, Publishers use it like crazy. Autoplay, even on Adweek, we have some autoplay video. So this has become a pretty standard thing. Um, before we dive into some of the other announcements from Apple, I'm just curious, uh, Steph, What What you know? What, how catastrophic, I guess, or, or not, do you think changes like this? Because I should mention that this comes on the heels of Google announcing that Chrome will also include an ad blocker. Uh, and, and I think we'll even automatically block ads that do not match with Google's kind of good ad standards. Uh, so not just ad blocking, but automatic ad blocking, including ads that are within Google's own network uh, if they don't comply with those standards. It feels like this could, you know, all this coming to head in the next year could really shake up the industry.
4: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, first off, I think it's interesting. To note that Apple and Google um, certainly stand to benefit from letting ads in and um, having porous browsers and collecting data on their own customers. But they're making the decision. I mean, clearly they're prioritizing um, the needs and desires of their customers over that. So I think that that is an interesting decision in and of itself. And I think that if Apple's version of Safari, which really takes a hard line in terms of ad blocking, if that becomes Popular with customers, then it will have to become an industry standard. I mean, you'll you'll see competitors follow suit. So it all comes down to if I think people respond to that and start favoring that browser because of that perk or not.
1: Well, it'll be interesting to see too. For now, uh, I believe that the feature the the um, is is pretty specific to desktop. Uh, but obviously, when you talk about Apple, what you're really thinking about is mobile. This seems like a, a, a kind of shot across the bow of what could be coming down the pipe. Uh, you know, autoplay is less of an issue in mobile. Uh, but, y- you know, when you talk about tracking and data, and y- 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 you know, privacy has become increasingly a hot button issue, especially with Apple squaring off against the government in several cases to secure user privacy, uh, you know, against uh, being open to investigators. And so it, it- It feels like that. I mean, Christina, do you think that that's part of what's driving – I mean, obviously – when tech companies like this may take a stance on privacy, they're not always known for being huge champions of privacy uh, or, or anti-advertising. But in this case, there there seems to be kind of an industry-wide push, uh, you know, in the same direction. What what do you think is driving that?
3: Oh yeah, I think it's definitely privacy. You know, they want people to be signing up for Apple Wallet. They want people to feel comfortable, you know, putting more and more and more information on on their platforms. And you know, at the same time, these these are the companies that are known for like having iClouds hacked, having people's information out into the world, people's like, you know, private photos, et cetera. So of course, when, you know, you're trying to create a system that makes it so that, you know, if you're an Apple user, you have to have an iPhone, you have to have an iMac, you have to like be all in on that system. You also want to make it so that even your web browsers are, you know, uh, I guess, living the same values which feels like a weird thing to say about a web browser (laughs) but I'm just gonna say it um
1: does my browser share my (laughs) politics
3: (laughs) (laughs) oh god guys I don't know um but yeah I mean I think people are more and more worried about you know what how they're using things and how they're being tracked and also just as a note stop putting like an autoplay video on a, on, a, on a post that has nothing to do with the, the video that it's autoplaying. Like I've seen that by so many publishers. So even though I work for a publisher, I am so excited about a, a thing that will stop autoplay videos because I don't want to click on a Newsweek article and see a video about Putin when it's an article about Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, you do
0: want to click I think... on an Adweek article, though, and watch an autoplay video.
3: I mean, we have great videos. So. <laughs> well,
0: and, and I think Christina makes a
1: good uh, kind of clarification there of of the good and the bad is that, you know, autoplay, while it's somewhat annoying, if if you're clicking through to a link that's about, you know, hey, here's a video about this and, and then the video pops right up, that's not super annoying. And that, that's kind of how we handle that, uh, you know, at Adweek. I, I think you're right, though, that more often than not, it's like I click on a news article and, and you know, CNBC or whatever pops up. Some unrelated live news blast that that you know it's just super annoying, or it's even worse where it it pops it up and you have no idea where the audio is even coming from because it's completely detached. You know, sometimes it's an ad, sometimes it's content. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the publishing industry has somewhat, as always, brought it on and brought some of this on itself. Uh, Tim, how how bad do you think uh,
0: you know agencies and advertisers and publishers too are freaking out about uh, uh, about some of these changes? Well, I'm sure they're freaking out, but you know, in the, in the long run, it's really about the user experience, and you can't annoy people and badger people into into watching your stuff. I mean, theoretically, in the long run, this will create uh, it'll force agencies and advertisers just to create better advertising uh, stuff that's not annoying stuff stuff that doesn't have to to autoplay to get your attention in in certain instances. So. Uh, I'm sure it'll hurt in the short term but um, I, I think it's never a bad thing when you're when you're looking at what the users experiencing and trying to make that better
1: well I want to uh, talk a little bit about cable news uh, which is something we have been uh, discussing quite a bit between Bill O'Reilly and you know coverage of Donald Trump uh, and you know I had an interesting conversation this uh, morning with our uh, TV and media editor Chris Aarons uh, to kind of get a better context I was like you know is it just me or is it weird that Fox News and MSNBC are the, at the top of the cable Cable ratings. So this is very much true. Uh, in May, Fox News was the uh, number one cable network in daytime uh, viewers, number two cable network in primetime, I think just behind uh, TBS or what someone who was airing NBA games, you know. So so essentially in, in terms of news, certainly number one. MSNBC was the number three cable network in daytime, number three in primetime, meaning they were just behind uh, Fox in terms of the, the news program. CNN, a decent, you know, number four. Uh, but I was like, you know, is that weird that that these would be at the top of cable? And he said, oh, you know, two years ago it was unheard of, uh, and so we even looked back at some of those ratings, and it's been it's been crazy. MSNBC, uh, two years ago, was around number 30 in these kind of monthly ratings. You know, they were lucky to get 30, 29 30th in these different demographics or in these different time slots, uh, but certainly not a top 10 player. Just since the inauguration, uh, they have exploded. And so now MSNBC, number two, cable network, obviously blowing away CNN, uh, but uh, really giving Fox News an incredible run for their money. And if they can keep up the kind of growth that they've seen, you know, they'll, they'll be a, a really... Kind of uh, game changing uh, player in that space. It's, I guess, not super surprising, right? That a you know this era of polarization has uh, lended itself to Fox News and MSE being the the right and the left sides of the political equation uh, blowing up. But I mean, you can really see it in the programming. Tucker Carlson had to had to pick up for Bill O'Reilly. He's done pretty well. He's held on to number one, although he's about ten percent down ratings wise from where O'Reilly was a year ago. Um, But then you look at Rachel Maddow. Uh, Rachel Maddow, her ratings have gone up 120% in one year. Uh, I mean, that's incredible growth. She's become number one in the in the coveted 25 to 54 demographics, so basically the one, the demo that advertisers really, really want to see. Uh, she's number two overall in cable news. And so this has really become this kind of uh, neck and neck uh, horse race every month and, and every day, honestly, of MSNBC. And, and some of our most read stories on Adweek now are just ratings grids, <laughs> like weekly ratings grids, because so many people are fascinated to see where these networks are standing. Uh, I'm curious, you know, we have talked a lot about cable news, but, you know, Stephanie, you know, what have you seen in terms of is MSNBC going to be able to keep up this momentum and really kind of hold on in the long term in the way that Fox News has? Or do you worry that it could just be kind of a short term resistance spike and then it drops back off? I mean, what what do you think is going to happen with it?
4: Well, I think in a way the challenger always has an advantage. And I think that you really saw Fox surge during, you know, Obama's, presidency, because they, you know, for lack of a better word, they, they were able to rally their viewers around a common foe. And now, you know, that, 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 that balance is shifting, where I, I feel like, you know, Fox maybe has less to say right now, and MSNBC um, perhaps has more, and they, they, they may end up having a more galvanized, you know, viewer base. So, I mean, certainly, I don't have a crystal ball and don't know how this is going gonna, is gonna to play out. But um, if I were betting, uh, I would bet that that momentum will continue.
1: Christina, I feel like younger viewers, uh, you know, a year ago, two years ago especially, didn't really, you know, think of cable news as much of a priority. It, it, it has always kind of—well, not always, but it's recently felt like a bit of an old person's uh, way of gathering your news. Uh, but MSNBC's growth uh, really seems to kind of uh, counter that argument. Have you seen just among your friend base of, of people in their 20s and, and early 30s, you know, are they becoming more interested in cable news than they were before?
3: Um, I have a weird friend group because it's a bunch of people who went to school for journalism who are all have all been Rachel Maddow nerds for a very long time. Um, But I will say among people who are like not necessarily, uh, you know, sitting around talking about whether or not, I don't know, um, the CBS anchor chair is going to be filled soon is, uh, you know, they're definitely more interested. Um, My friends that are watching RuPaul's Drag Race are are definitely also changing the channel and watching Maddow when you know um, they're they're ready to have something like explained to them in a very calm and soothing and you know thought out way, <laughs> where she slams the papers on her desk. That's something people are definitely uh, into. I mean, personally, I I got cable recently. I I added the cord because I got got tired of being hooked up through like 18 different people's passwords. Um, (laughs) So, you know, yeah, I think young people are are interested in watching. I I will speak for the older millennials.
1: (laughs) I, I, you know, it's like the other day I was reading my Sunday New York Times and I was watching the twenty whatever minute interview with Vladimir Putin on, uh, you know, Megan Kelly's new MSN, or new NBC show, and I was just like, what, what has happened here? Like, what time warp am I in where I'm, I'm sitting down <laughs> to watch a twenty five minute interview with a political leader and I'm reading like these massive print newspapers. That's a it's a weird time, but I do wonder you know I'm always just like ah oh, this a, like if if something happened like if Donald Trump was out of office next month and everything just kind of went back to politically normal, I really do wonder if these publications and channels you know how they would how they would weather that return to normalcy, but I don't know you have to wonder if they're having like secret meetings wondering like guys, what if just people remember that news is boring at some point uh <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of non-boring news, I wanted to make sure that we made time for we we just never talk about radio ads, and it's it, when they come up, you know, at award shows and stuff. I'm always fascinated because I, I sit down at those like press conferences where they announce the radio winners. And I'm like, I'm not gonna know any of these. <laughs> I've never heard a radio <laughs> ad in for damn ever. Uh, so, Tim, tell us. Uh, who won uh, the best radio ad <laughs> of the year? Yeah, last uh, and, and why? Uh,
0: last week was the Radio Mercury Awards in New York, and the campaign that if if you asked anyone what what one radio ad campaign that they probably know, it, it's uh, it's the Motel Six campaign by the Richards Group, and indeed that won uh, best of show um, at, at the at the Radio Mercury's last week. And uh, let's listen to the 30 second spot now that, that took best of show, that the single ad actually it was all it was three ads in a campaign that won best of show, but this this single execution um, won one best spot of the night. Hi, Tom
2: Bodette. Apparently, the hip thing for businesses to do these days is target millennials. So it may sound sus coming from this baby boomer, but Motel 6 is a V-great place for your squad to stay woke or asleep. The updated rooms are hashtag blessed with contemporary floors, bedding, and flat-screen TVs that are totally on fleek. Plus, their prices are always low AF. I'm Tom Bodette, and we'll keep it lit for you. Book online at motel6.com.
0: So as you can tell, it's still Tom Baudet. He's still doing these ads. He's been doing them since 1986, which is crazy. I think uh, Richards Group's had the account since then. I think it was a creative director at the at the Richards Group was listening to NPR one day. And, and Tom Baudet in the mid-'80s had, uh, when he was still building houses in, in Montana, wherever he lives, um, he had this sort of side gig as a... As a commentator on on NPR, he would give these sort of little humorous essays. And someone at the Richards Group heard him and thought, "Man, that guy would be great—a great radio advertising voice." And sure enough, um, the campaign was a smash hit as soon as it started running in 1986. Um, it won Best of Show at the Radio Mercury's in 19—in the very first Radio Mercury Awards in 1992. Uh, Motel Six and the Richards Group won Best of Show. Then they won Best of Show this year. It's it's 31 years later. And it's incredible. I mean, it's the, the consistency of this campaign, 31 years. Um, you know, they, they hit on a formula that worked and, and they keep it fresh. I mean, this, the Millennials uh, spot that you just heard is such a, f- a funny take. Uh, there's a few other ones. Um, if, you, if you search for Radio Mercury on the AdWick site, um, you'll be able to find. Uh, there's a couple of other ones in the campaign this year that were very funny. One in which Tom pretends to have had plastic surgery because the motel's remodeled its, its rooms. And so he's talking as though he can't really smile or speak which is pretty funny. Um, So yeah, I love this campaign. Did you guys listen to these? Uh, I I thought they were as good as any Motel 6 ads I've heard.
4: I thought it was so good. I mean, that millennial spot in particular, because something that I think... In our industry, we talk about a lot is just how sometimes advertise. Actually, a lot of times advertisers try too hard to sound like millennials in their social media accounts. You know, to the point that it's just it's kind of become ridiculous and laughable. And so I think they were so smart in picking up on that and sort of making you know poking fun of themselves or poking fun of other brands. Um, And the writing, I mean, I think that whole spot just really stands on the writing. Um, You know, they have a tagline along the lines of like, we'll keep the light on for you. And in the millennial spot, they say, we'll keep it lit for you. It's just so clever.
0: Now, a millennial wrote that spot. Um, The interesting backstory here is that um, a guy named Chris Smith runs the account creatively at Richards. And he was on our... Very first Creative One Hundred list back in 2015, and at the time he told us um, that I guess he was in eighth grade back in 1986 when when this campaign started, and it was part of what made him want to go into advertising. And so when he did get to Richard's group, you know he, he realized this dream of running the Motel Six radio account, and he was pretty intimidated by it. And he, initially he tried to write all the ads himself. Kind of he was very precious with it. Um, But he very quickly realized um, that it was a lot richer when he opened it up to other people. And and this year's campaign is kind of a case in point. You've got two copywriters credited on this campaign. Uh, One of them is a guy named Steve Grimes, who's a 25-year advertising veteran, uh, been around at a lot of different agencies, you know, a very seasoned writer. Um, The other one, who is the sole writer credited on on that millennials ad, is a woman named Rachel Dar, D-A-W-E-R. And uh, she graduated graduated from uh, UT Austin in 2015, and she was an intern at Richards that summer. Um, she joined in the wow. fall. Uh, jo- she joined in the fall as a full time copywriter. And here we are; it's like 18 months later, and she just won best of show, you know, for a campaign wow. that, that started probably 10 years before she was born. So, I'm,
3: wow, a smart millennial campaign written by a millennial. What what a
0: madness. concept! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just great to see young talent contributing to such a classic. Um, campaign. Well, all right. Well, we're going to
1: keep the ad love rolling uh, by moving on to my favorite portion of the show each week where we talk about the ads worth watching.
0: Tim, uh, what else have you got for us this week? So we mentioned the Apple uh, Worldwide Developers Conference happened uh, this week. So um, through TBWA, they uh, Apple rolled out a, a, a basically an introductory video um, for, for, that, for that conference. And it's a pretty funny ad. It's a, I think it's a 3-minute ad or so and it's it, Im, it imagines a world without apps. So you've got this uh got this guy who starts his job at Apple and in trying to plug in something under his desk, he unplugs all the servers that you know, hyperbolically um, ending the the world of apps. Everyone's apps all around the world start disappearing from their iPhones and what ensues is this sort of Y2K scenario where You know, there's there's traffic accidents and there's people who can't face swap on on Snapchat anymore, so they they get they have to get uh, actual surgery to face swap with each other, and it becomes this sort of escalating absurdity. Um, And there's there's a few funny, uh, basically the app market, the app store becomes this sort of black market, and and uh, it's just basically an end of the world scenario. And they called it the app apocalypse. APP. (laughs) And, uh, there's a few kind of cameos in it. Brittany Furlan's in it. Um, she's distributing hard copies of her selfies to people. And, uh, the Tinder founder, Jonathan Bedin is, is in there also, um, kind of like basically hawking himself, um, in like a booth (laughs) instead of being, you know, on Tinder. So I thought it was pretty clever. Um, it was kind of dark, but done in, in a, in a kind of a goofy way too. And, and, uh, you know, I think Apple's kind of loosened up its its comedy in the last year or two. And uh, I thought this was a pretty nice, um, nice way to open the conference because it was it was also an homage to developers. You know, it said basically keep on what you're doing and keep the world together.
1: Yeah, this I I, I liked the ad a lot. It just did not feel very Apple to me. It felt much more in the vein of like when Samsung and Apple were really at each other. uh, This felt like it would have been a Samsung ad.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. It it definitely a lot looser. You know, um, Apple's known for being very, um, highly designed and, and very structured and this, this felt a little loosey goosey, but, um, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was, uh, you know, a fun, a fun way to, to kind of expand the tone of the brand mm-hmm. and it won't I be uh, running, it won't um, be running on TV or anything. I think it was just basically made for this conference and, uh, I think they threw it up on YouTube.
4: I think we're not used to seeing Apple make fun of itself, and there was definitely an element of that in this in this ad. You know, the the guy who's starting his first day on the job at at Apple is is being walked through this really pristine office with all white walls and it's just spotless and there's no personality. And the lady who's walking him around says, you know, I'm sorry, it's been really crazy around here lately. You know, and I, I just I, I thought that that was kind of a nice change in tone for them, and then also you know to to an extent. Maybe Making fun of, um, you know, the app ecosystem and its users, who, and how dependent we are on those on those apps. Um, I, I actually really enjoyed it, and, and probably laughed out loud at my desk when I watched it. Yeah, I
0: think uh, maybe Silicon Valley has changed, you know, everyone's uh, mm-hmm. view on on tech comedy out there. I'm sure Apple's not immune to that either. This had kind of a, a Silicon Valley vibe to it. I thought.
1: Yeah, totally. I, I was going to say like that. That was first thing I thought of is is like that Silicon Valley has made it okay for actual Silicon Valley to laugh at itself.
0: Yeah, exactly.
3: I feel like enlightened also the HBO show with Laura Dern, that was short lived and lovely and everyone should watch it. If you haven't was also, uh, an inspiration point for this
1: spot. I think my, uh, yeah, it was Snapchat, I think my, my all-time favorite moment in Silicon Valley was when at the funeral for one of the major characters, I won't spoil it for, you know, the few who haven't seen season one, but uh, there's a funeral at which, uh, you know, these real people kind of mix with fictional people, and Evan Spiegel from Snapchat, like, like spends half of his eulogy talking about how he was not disappointed in Snapchat. <laughs> like this whole, like, so in summary, great man, not disappointed in Snapchat. Uh, and so just seeing seeing people like that really to get out there and just kind of poke fun, yeah, it certainly is is kind of having a, a, a larger cultural impact in a way that I think Office Space did, uh, you know, at its time of kind of like letting Office drones mock themselves. Uh, all right, well,
0: what else do you have for us this week? Well, the other two ads um, I want to talk about are really more about creative media buys than than um, the actual content. Uh, the first one is uh, this sort of really fun story out of California where uh, a student at a high school out there named Hannah Heitman uh, was working on her high school yearbook and, and wanted to raise some money uh, for production costs. And so she basically got in touch with ad agencies and asked them to get their clients to buy a headshot uh, of, of their mascot and put, in, put it amid all the other uh, headshots uh, of, of the seniors, the graduating seniors. So um, the two that she got bites from um, were KFC and, uh, and Geico. And so if you scroll through the, the, uh, the Bear Creek High School uh, yearbook out in Stockton, California. Um, suddenly Colonel Sanders is right there in, in the S's, and uh, the gecko is in the G's. And apparently KFC even paid uh, to put Colonel Sanders in there. I, I, I talked to I talked to Wyden and Kennedy, and they said that they loved this idea. I, I guess Hannah reached out to Wyden. And Wyden got the got the green light from KFC and actually paid Hannah some money um, for this ad placement. So hyper targeted, just just targeting a few hundred students. Um, but actually, Hannah was on the local news out there in Stockton and 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 talked about how yearbooks are, are a really great place to advertise because <laughs> uh, kids are looking there anyway, and if they see something out of place, they're gonna sort of you know they're gonna remember that. So pretty cool thing i got i talked to the martin agency too uh last week and they for some reason uh said that geico did not pay to put the gecko in so i'm not sure what the disconnect was there but um KFC certainly did, so you can call that a, a hyper-targeted ad placement uh, in one obscure high school yearbook <laughs> in California. I, I, I like I
1: picture the conversation with Wyden of like someone pitching like, "Hey, will we put Colonel Sanders in a yearbook if you're up for
0: that?" And Wyden just being like, "We will literally do anything with Colonel <laughs> Sanders." <laughs> well, you would also hear. You can also imagine Wyden saying, "Why didn't we think of that? That's exactly what we would do." You know, that's like such yeah. a wyden esque idea to kind of hack a high school yearbook. So.
1: 18 uh, months from now, that student's going to win best of show in some ad. ad yeah. <laughs>
4: exactly. Someone give Hannah a job.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. All right, and your third pick of the week? Uh, so the other one is also a really clever uh, media buy. This this one's out of Canada. There's a, there's a weed killer brand up there called Weed Be Gone. It's owned by Scott's, and they've had this ad character for a while named Prickly, who's this um, spokesweed, I guess you'd call him. He's like a... You know he shouts at you, you know, and he's constantly multiplying, and it's sort of part of this really intentionally annoying uh, ad campaign. And they've done a lot of fun stuff. Um, The agency is Rethink, and they've done some really cool, um, fun sort of playing around with media. Uh, They had Prickly in a in a pre-roll ad, and and next to the skip uh, next to the skip ad button, there was another button that said "Kill Prickly," and if you clicked that, uh, it would kind of fast forward you to the end of the ad, and you so you'd sort of kill part of the ad and. Uh, So this time they did a pretty impressive um, media buy where they contacted, I think five or six networks and a TV commercial with prickly started on one channel and he's yelling at you saying, don't you hate me so much. I'm a, I'm a weed. I'm terrible. And then he says, uh, I'm spreading all over the, all over your television. Uh, and, and he says, Tur- turn to the food network. I'm, I'm over there too. And anyone who actually turned over there, uh, clicked the channel over, uh, I guess, two seconds after he said that, um, the ad continued over on the food network. And this happened three or four times. And there's a case study video that we posted that shows kind of how it worked. And, you know, I mean, this is a pretty ambitious idea for, for such a goofy thing to do. Um, you know, you have to, you really have to time this kind of thing, right? You know, you have to be you can't be off by you know thirty seconds, and and you have to really work with. Uh, I think it was Media Edge Canada was the media agency who really uh, worked all this, all the details of this thing out with with the various networks there. But um, really clever idea, and you know totally on brand too. Like weeds do spread um, all over if you're not if you're not careful, and and this ad spread all over the all over your TV dial. So nice job by by Scotts uh, and by Rethink, which. You know, sometimes these Canadian agencies come up with some awesome stuff, and this is a perfect example of that.
3: There's good work in Canada. Shocking, I know. It happens.
0: (laughs) happens. Um,
3: I I liked this, but I wish they had cast Gilbert Gottfried as the voice, because then it would have just taken that like annoyance thing to the next level. His voice is so distinct. I don't know.
0: Definitely. I don't know if they had the budget for that, but um, I don't
3: think he's that expensive.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, my gut feeling is true. Gilbert he'll work for, f- He probably does. He would probably do it for like twenty bucks.
1: Yeah, he'll work for food.
3: <laughs> I saw him walking down the street last week, right, but right outside of a Michael's, and he was dressed like a, you know, a kid going to school. He had a backpack on, and he was it was it just gave me the impression that Gilbert Godfrey's rate can't be that high. <laughs> Hot tip, everyone.
0: We will investigate that. (laughs) Discount prices
1: on retail, (laughs) Godfrey's. (laughs) All right. Uh, Thank you, Tim, as always, for rounding up ads worth watching uh, and uh, looking forward to next week's roundup. And uh, with that, we're going to move into our big discussion of the week. All right. It was our. disruptors issue uh, this week in print. And on the cover was uh, Gina Davis, who we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, did want to explain a little bit about the disruptors. This was a list of dozens of women, I believe 37 in all, who are disrupting the tech and the marketing and media industries, uh, really being advocates for gender balance or just kind of proving the value of getting more women in leadership and in a variety of ways. So we'll talk about some of them as well. First, because we have Christina here and you were the one who interviewed Gina Davis, I've been a big fan of hers for a very long time. And I'm glad you asked about uh, some of my very favorite Gina Davis moments in your interview. We'll talk about that. Uh, but first, I just wondered, uh, what was she like? You know, did you have any kind of preconception going in of, of what she'd be like? Did she meet those? Was she a little different? Uh, how did she come across?
3: Okay, so um, it's it's not a typical thing to have met the person you're going to interview before you interview them, but I met her at an event for her um, institute last fall. And so I already had this impression of her that she was very down to earth, very, you know just kind and and uh, has that throaty, comforting voice that you, you are very used to. Um, and so when we got on the phone, um, you know, she is based in California. She'll be in New York for our, um, our event tomorrow. But, you know, she, uh, or I guess today, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, our event is on Wednesday. So um, you'll see more about that on our social channels. Anyway, um, she just... You know, was very kind, very... Um, she's kind of long-winded a little bit. You know, when she's answering her questions, she's really thinking about it, and she takes a little bit to get to where, you know, you think she's going. Um, she's also a, a bit funnier than, than you might initially think she is. Like, you already think she's going to be kind of funny, and then she just, like has such a dry wit that it's like, oh, okay, you're you're pulling my leg a bit here. That's cool. <laughs> I don't
1: know. Yeah, yeah, it's funny you mentioned the long-winded. I, I was really, you know, impressed. It's not to say I, I expected kind of her to not have really well-thought-out answers, but, I mean, her answers were so thorough. And I'm reading that, you know, normally you do a and a and you get one or two sentences or you get these kind of rambling, tangential uh, answers from people that we as journalists have to really edit down. I mean, the, it seemed like almost the nerdier you got with questions about, you know, the tools she's building with Google and, you know, some of the stuff of, of like the trends in the industry, the more detailed she got.
3: Yeah, I think she's someone where you can tell that she does her homework about anything that she's interested in. And she's going to know exactly what you're talking about, exactly what, you know, you want to know from her. And um, I think... I think if you're going to be someone who is like the mouthpiece for, um, you know, bettering an industry, um, you you kind of have to like <laughs> come with your with your facts in your back pocket and be ready to like slam them on the table whenever you need be. I mean, Gina Davis is also a Mensa member, uh, so you know, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. <laughs>
1: Well, so th- I remember, you know, it was over a decade ago that the Gina Davis Institute was founded. I remember when it first came out, and you always kind of wonder with these celebrity initiatives, you know, is it going to be kind of a flash in the pan? Or are they going to stick around? She has obviously held it out. And if anything, I think she's been much more practical uh, than I expected a lot of celebrity-driven initiatives like this to be. It's the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. Tell us a little bit about that organization and, and kind of what are their what are their big-picture goals?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, she focuses a lot on media that has to do with children she you know she talks to people at pixar and and sort of all over the place she wants to make sure that the media that we're putting out into the world shows all of the all of the you know roles that women play in real life and and as well as like you know making sure that there's representation down to like if there's a scene of a crowd that it's not more men than uh than women and so she's just you know um gone about it in a way where she's had a lot of meetings with people all across Hollywood and now she's doing the same thing and adding agencies and brands and just trying to talk to people and show them data and make sure that they understand what this what the the impact of not rectifying these sort of things can be because her whole thing is like if if young women can see it then they like can believe that they can be it um She's even, like, you know, she talked to um, – she talked uh, about this on a panel. Um, and then Shonda Rhimes realized that, like, her, her uh, you know, the crowd seats in her shows were a bit male-dominated. So she rectified that. They also, um, you know, ended up talking to the people who cast Empire. Um, and I guess the second season of that show had a part with Marissa Tomei as this, like um, – You know, private equity rich white woman. And they had originally written that as rich white man. And they just, you know, after um, hearing Gina speak, decided to uh, switch that to be a woman. Of course, they wanted to make sure that's something women actually do. Obviously, they do. We have a woman who does exactly that on our disruptors list. But, um, you know, then uh, they switched that and cast Marissa Tomei. And I, Asked Gina, I was like, "Oh, were you bummed that you didn't get that part?" And she was like, "I'm not doing this to just get parts for myself. Like, she's just happy that you know there can there can be, um, there there are people that are flexible and that they'll switch something like that to to have a woman in that place."
1: Now, you also asked her explicitly what would be her kind of message, her guidance to the ad industry. What did she say to that?
3: Oh, I mean, you know, I, I think it's pretty obvious at first to um you know just stop having super sexist ads where a woman is probably just there to be objectified um I would love to know I'm, I'm now thinking it would be great to ask her what she thinks of these like newer Carl's Jr. ads um because they're trying to like flip their old like Babes and burgers on his on his head. Um, I don't know if she would think that the new execution really goes as far as it should, but you know, I, I think I think starting by just trying to move uh, away from objectifying women is what she would say, and um, then you can sort of get into the you know more nuanced uh, approaches to uh, what a woman is actually like. <laughs>
1: and it's, it, you know, on the one hand, it's really sad that, that we're having this conversation in 2017. Uh, but, you know, the the big thing that's going to be defining a lot of can uh, the can Lions this year, which start up in two weeks, uh, is that they have a, they put an official policy in place this year that they have asked jurors not to award uh, Lions to ads that objectify women where, you know, as Gina says in the interview, uh, you know, that they are, that the whole point of the ad is like, look, this woman's hot. You know that she is basically an object uh, and and not a person and so it, it is kind of interesting that like in 2017 that that is her big advice to the industry that that is the big new initiative that can is putting in place uh, yeah, it's taken a long time but I guess it's a, you know better than not getting there at all. Uh, I, I would love to keep hearing about Jana Davis uh, I, I do have to ask about a league of their own uh, because it was one of my favorite <laughs> movies and I was so glad you asked about that uh, what how does she kind of see the legacy of a league of their own?
3: I mean, she's just she I don't think she expected that starring in a movie like that would continue for, you know, 25 years to inspire women to get into sports. But that's the position that she's in. And that's really exciting. So she's super pumped about that. And I guess um, her castmates on um, The Exorcist, which she was on the first season of, um, you know, they for Halloween, all dressed in Rockford Peach outfits, which is kind of lovely. Um but yeah she just seems to be really happy to be in a in a movie that you know had a lasting impact which I th- I think in any industry anyone would be really pumped about like if you if you were in a movie with like you know Tom Hanks and Laurie Petty and it was a really fun time and then also like inspired people to get involved in something. That's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty fascinating that her career has had, you know, several of these roles. I mean, obviously Thelma and Louise. And I think at the time, a lot of people thought that would be this kind of iconic feminist, uh, you know, movie. And it certainly is in its way, but I feel like league of their own has just had more cultural impact in the way that it, it has, inspired so many people and it's just such a a frequent point of cultural reference uh you know kind of long long past uh you know jokes about Thelma and Louise and everything uh but uh, I did want to leave plenty of time to talk about the rest of the disruptors list. She was one of 37 uh, people that we had on this list. Uh, Steph, uh, why don't you tell us about some of the names uh, that jumped out to you as, as being kind of fascinating uh, figures in their industries?
4: There are so many great people on this list. Um, it is hard to pick out a couple, but one that stood out to me is Sharmi Albrickson, who's the CEO of Smart Girls. And it's basically the company that is making coding robots for girls. And so they look like dolls, like maybe a larger Barbie doll, and they're on like a scooter or moped. And there's an app that goes with that allows girls to actually, you know, program this doll to do different things. And in doing so, kind of educates while entertaining them um, in a in a toy that maybe they can relate to a little more than like, say, a Star Wars robot or not. I mean, we, get, we do go down a road of like, gendering toys. And I think that there's a debate uh, in that in itself. But it's definitely a unique product. And I think it's cool that she's making something um, that a girl could, you know, buy today, and I think can have a really real and quick impact Um uh, another that stood out to me were the co-founders of Joan, which is uh, an agency that opened last year, uh, Lisa Clooney and um, Jamie Robinson. And what I really loved about them is hearing their origin story, that basically they went to lunch and they made a list of everything that drives them crazy about the ad industry. Um, how many of you have done that? <laughs> Christina and I have maybe done that. Um, <laughs> And they said that it came to about 90 items, 90 things that drove them nuts. And they decided that, you know, if they felt like they could really... Make some headway on those 90 items that it would be worth starting an ad agency, and I, I find that incredibly inspiring because so many of us—it's so easy to complain, but it's much harder to say like, okay, I'm actually going to take action, and uh, and not just complain about it, but but take steps that in, improve these things. And you know, they've gotten some big clients like Netflix and General Mills. Um, and they're they're playing with the business model, so I, I think they're ones to watch.
1: Tim, there were a few other uh, agency representatives in the list. Uh, w- what are some that jumped out
0: to you? Well, it was great to see Susan, Susan Cradle on this list, the, uh, F- the global creative chief over at FCB. You know, Susan's such a talented, uh, original thinker, and, you know, you talked a little bit about what CAN is doing this year around gender. Um, you know, Susan for, for a long time has, has pushed for 50, 50 male, female representation on awards show juries, uh, which is something that doesn't get talked about quite as much as what the work shows. But, you know, when you have more women on the juries, um, you know, the right work starts to get awarded and, and, you know, honestly being on an award show jury, especially one as, as, um, prestigious as can, you know, gets you, uh, it raises your your own profile uh, as a creative person, and so um, you know I think she she looks at that as as uh, it helps award proper work, and it also furthers those women's careers. So that was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I, and it and it's clearly working. I think can this year had forty three percent female jurors, if I remember the number off the top of my head. Uh, but you know, a substantial increase uh, thanks to people like Susan.
0: Yeah, and all the all the award shows are, are doing this. You know, Clio famously. Um, Uh, started to change their approach to this as well. So, you know, it's definitely long overdue also. And, you know, another woman on this list who's also fascinating is uh, Carrie Keenan. She's the former CCO of Deutsch New York. She left Deutsch maybe a year and a half ago, getting on for two years ago. Um, She's still in the industry. She does some work through her own branded content shop, which is called Half Irish. Uh, But lately um, she's been working on this project called Nevertheless. And it's a a really fascinating um, project Thing that she's doing with Catherine Lausch, uh, and basically they started this um, this project called Nevertheless, and, and the idea is to kind of harness the the, the thinking um, from from brilliant women all across advertising um, to help market the resistance to the current American uh, administration. So, uh, I think we're going to be writing more about this in, in Adweek uh, as the as the months go by, and as they start to produce work and sort of help other groups uh, with their marketing. Um, but it's fascinating, you know. It's really, it's really taking, uh, you know, her, her creative skills and and using them for for a, a, a mission that she's super passionate about. And so, you know, she really stuck out to me as well. But but as Steph said, it's there's thirty seven women on this list and. They're all they're all pretty remarkable in their own way.
1: Yeah, I feel like we'd be doing a disservice to not talk about Cindy Gallup. Uh, she is the uh, founder of uh, Make Love Not Porn and and a few other organizations. Basically, one of the most vocal advocates for gender balance and and uh, gender equality in the advertising industry, and really basically kind of the number one watchdog, I guess I would say, of the industry. Um, the, I, I think in, in a conversation with Steph yesterday, I, I called her a benevolent arsonist, uh, which, you know, it's <laughs> is kind of, I, I think her intentions are good, even even when she's kind of tearing everything down. I think it's always, uh, you know, for, for the for the betterment of in the industry, uh, she has taken on Adweek several times. And I always uh, personally really enjoy those uh, back and forths because I, I, I love the fact that anyone cares enough to debate with us and not just say, I hate that or I love that, but to actually have a debate. Uh, we had an interesting one after this list came out, and she is in the list, and she was saying, saying, oh, now we need a list of 37 men who are uh, championing gender diversity. And we had an interesting back and forth. And, and I think, uh, you know, all the panelists on here were probably either saw part of that or I chatted about you with that. But, you know, to me, it just kind of, I, I would want to run a list of 37 men who are championing gender diversity, even though, the, you know, props to those guys. That's great. Uh, but I do think there is a lot of grossness when you feature a big list of all dudes and say, good job, guys, on you know having a base level of respect for women that you support them having equal representation in the workforce and uh, you know and, and it turned into a pretty long and and you know for twitter a pretty detailed uh, back and forth i love those uh, kind of discussions uh, even though you know some people were pretty fired up in both directions but i think she is great about kind of sparking those conversations tim would you say that she is you know how would you say she's viewed by the, by the ad industry? I mean, I, I think there's certainly a level of fear, especially after last year at Cannes. You know, Cindy was the one really calling out um, several campaigns uh, for being sexist or for being objectifying, and uh, and really sparking you know kind of a, to the point where she highlighted an Almat BBDO campaign that where they BBDO ended up having to give back lions. Uh, I mean, how would you say she's viewed in the industry? Yeah, I
0: mean, if you continue to make sexist advertising, you, you have to watch out for Cindy Gallop because she's going to call you out on it. There's no doubt. I mean, you know, this goes back to her days, too. At uh, you know, She's been a polarizing figure for many, many years, going back to her days when she was the chair uh, at BBH New York. And uh, you know she's got an amazing spirit, amazing energy, and she you know she cares a lot. So um, I think there is a certain amount of fear. You know you don't want to be in her targets, but at the same time, you know when you are in her targets, uh, you know you'll, you're going to learn something. And I think she's a, a great force for good acro- across the business. And uh, I'm going to have to go back and, and check out your back and forth with her. I didn't actually see that yesterday. So
1: yeah, well, what was funny is that someone you know lashed out at me and said how dare you disagree with Cindy Gallop. You know, you need to just shut up and listen to her. And I was like, I mean, I always listen to, to Cindy Gallop. I mean, it's, and she's one of those people where I think when we disagree, like we agree probably 90% of the time. Like it's very rare. I see, you know, as, as someone who is, I'm personally very passionate about gender balance. It's a big issue for me. And I, and I think she and I generally agree. I don't necessarily agree that everyone needs to record themselves having sex. But, you know, there are a few areas where she and I uh, kind of part ways. But, uh, you know, I learn a lot in those in those moments where I'm like, well, I agree with you philosophically <laughs> but but you know, in practicality. Uh and, and so to me I was just like, Yeah, I mean I I know there's certainly the Twitter's not short on on dudes willing to disagree with women, uh, but I think that she and I have always had, a, and, and Adweek in general, I think a lot of the staffers have had a very kind of respectful back and forth with her over the years. And it's really helped shape our coverage and, and helped make us more aware of, of issues. You know, she, she's certainly a great listener uh, within the industry and paying attention to multiple generations of women. Uh, Christina, was there uh, anyone else on the list uh, beyond Gina that we talked about that that jumped out to you?
3: Sure. Um, You know, I'd I'd obviously, if we're talking about Cindy, we're probably in the same breath going to talk about Kat Gordon. Um, You know, I think it's kind of funny for her to be uh, the founder of the 3% conference. And, you know, the the 3% conference is based on the lack of female creatives in the ad world. You know, when she created it, it was at 3%. It is now at 11 percent, but you're not going to go back and change the name of your conference to be like, you know what? We're going to change every year <laughs> to be what it should be. Um, but what she's actually she's in the midst of trying to do something kind of cool. She's working with a bunch of agencies to, um, you know, give a sort of watermark, um, a, a certificate of sorts to um, to have them, um, you know, be uh cleared I guess by the um three percent conference as you know a a a good place for female creatives which is kind of cool um so yeah she's doing that and then um Jill Soloway the creator of Transparent the the Amazon show that's won a bunch of awards um You know, they also created a another show called I Love Dick for Amazon. Um, And, you know, they've just been really out there about trying to make sure that the kind of shows that are on on the airways are representative of, you know, all of these different gender spectrums and people and. I don't know. That's really fun.
1: Well, so many more. I, I was just scrolling back through the list and I was like, oh, man, I could talk about like seven or eight more of these um, because they're they, they are all such fascinating figures. So I definitely recommend we don't want to eat up, you know, another hour of, of, of podcast time, but definitely recommend looking up uh, our series, The the Disruptors. Uh, the headline is 37 Women Who Are Disrupting the Status Quo and Championing Gender Diversity in Advertising and Tech. So any variation of looking that up, you should have no trouble finding. Uh, So big thanks to Christina for a great cover story and for telling us more about that. Uh, Definitely recommend everyone check out her interview with Gina Davis uh, on adweek.com and uh, we have got uh, a lot coming up let's see Uh, next week's issue is our annual Creative 100 which this year times uh, coincides with our CAN preview CAN Lions preview Uh, CAN Lions starts up in less than two weeks and uh, so next week we'll be unveiling our Creative 100 this is a completely new list every year we never repeat anybody Uh, it's a labor of love that Tim and I uh, really buckle down on each year so I cannot wait to talk about some of the people including who made the cover this year Uh, it's a very fascinating Celebrity, one that we were all very excited to have on, on the magazine uh, and uh, and talk about more. We will also, of course, be talking about Can uh, Tim. Maybe you can grace us with some of his predictions on what's going to win. And then we're going to have a whole mess of podcasts coming out of Can. Uh, if I can get decent Wi Fi, we will be sending all sorts of uh, of interviews from Can. Uh, and we may not have a full episode that week, uh, uh, two weeks from now, but uh, we will certainly give you more podcasting than than uh, you'll know what to do with. Uh, and then uh, lots more coming. So keep an eye on Adweek.com, and uh, and we we will. Uh be just filling your feeds with all manner of of great creative coverage. Uh, Big thanks again to Christina, to Steph, uh, to Tim. Thank you for joining us. And uh, if you have not, please leave us a review on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Those reviews mean a lot to us, and they help new audiences discover the podcast. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Christina Monlo. So thank you, Christina. And uh, we will talk to you next week.